What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome back to Killer Fun, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Chrissy. I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today, we're going to talk about Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. The it's kind of, was kind of an independent film. I didn't realize how independent it was, but it started appearing in film festivals in June of 2011. Well, if you follow film, you might be very familiar with the director now. Right. Yes. Because Richard Linklater, this is one of his films. Yes. So it's kind of a big indie film. You know what I mean? Yes. That's why it was so interesting. It, it never really got a wide release in theaters. It only got a limited U.S. release in April of 2012. So it's sort of an indie film, but with huge actors, a huge director, I mean, great production value. Uh, oh this God. is not what you typically think of when you hear indie. This is a high production value. Yeah. Extremely well done. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So Richard Linkletter did Dazed and Confused with Matthew McConaughey, School of Rock with Jack Black. So he's worked with a lot of these people before. He also did, I wanted to point out some of his other movies that I really loved that are not as well-known, maybe also a little indie. Um, I loved Waking Life. I don't know that one. Oh, it's really good. It's an animated film, but like he filmed it and then they animated over top of the film. Oh, I've heard about that. It's real cerebral and there's not really like a cohesive story. It's more like a short story anthology. Okay. And there's a part with Ethan Hawke in it and it's super interesting interesting and it's about like dreams and things okay well i'll yeah. have to go look at that because yeah. I, I when you said that i remembered yes i have been told likely by my filmmaker husband that that exists yeah or, but that would make sense he's that a big filmmaker, fan yeah so and boyhood boyhood which was amazing and filmed over you know, very long span of time. Like he literally filmed this child growing up. Love hate. Also with Ethan Ethan Hawke. You, also you, with Ethan Hawke. I love, love hate. hate. Really? What I did you hate about it. I thought the concept needed to be done. Mm-hmm. The experiment itself absolutely needed to be attempted. I love it for the art that it is, but I did not enjoy one iota of it. Really? So, yeah. Lots of um, the stuff I don't like in films. And it's so I may have missed the stuff I like because I was so hung up on the stuff I don't like. I'd get really bored with like long, slow pushes. Okay. And I get really bored with like looking at a person doing nothing. Okay. Or attempting to have a thought. That's what it feels like when I'm watching it. It's really slow. Okay. My husband loves that. Yeah. Loves it. And I'm like, (laughs) I get it. Move on. Like, so I, I don't know. Maybe I just have a different preference or maybe i'm just a product of my time but i don't have patience for it so really love it don't want to ever see it again okay yay okay there you go (laughs) that's fine 
Then we have Jack Black as title character, Bernie T.D. Yeah, and just in case somebody's confused, we are not talking about Weekend at Bernie's. This is not Weekend at Bernie's. Yes. This is not about Bernie Sanders, the presidential candidate. I get a lot of that when I mention this film. Yeah, they're like, Bernie, what is that? Oh, I've seen that, Weekend at Bernie's? No. No. Mm -mm. This is a different movie. So Jack Black, Tenacious D, lots of cartoon voices in Ice Age, Kung Fu Panda, silly movies. Like Nacho Libre. Oh my gosh. Yes, Nacho <laughs> Libre. And wait, Shallow How. And Shallow How. That's a controversial one. Yeah, yes, it is. And, you know, tons of parts, large parts, small parts, tons of stuff. I mean, he's 150 some odd credits on Internet Movie Database, which I was surprised, which was about twice as many as Shirley MacLaine. I have who to say, I was about to mention next. Yeah. Jack Black. Fully, fully underappreciated in our time. Agreed. He is amazing. He can be serious. He can be funny. He's a great singer. I mean, he's a musician. It's fully underappreciated in our time. Yes. That's (laughs) an excellent, excellent way to put it. So Shirley MacLaine played Marjorie Nugent. Her first IMDb credit was in 1955. In an Alfred Hitchcock movie called The Trouble with Harry. And then, of course, she's a long and illustrious career in terms of endearment, Steel Magnolia. She was in several episodes of Downton Abbey. She's iconic. She is. She is. Despite the fact that she only has 70-some. As if that's not enough. (laughs) As if that's that's not not enough enough credits in IMDb. It's, of course, plenty. More than. But she she is fantastic. And she's great in this film. Oh, my gosh. She's so good. Then we have Matthew McConaughey as Danny Buck Davidson. Always a good decision. Yes, always a good decision. Dazed and confused with Linkletter, which is where his most famous quote came from. All right, all right, all right. I love it. <laughs> I love that he like still uses it. That he that made he it up like, on set. Yeah, he made it up on set and he says it all the time. He's not annoyed that everybody else does it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I love that well, about him. He's, he's not annoyed that people know him for that either. Yeah. That they he associate that with. Yeah. yeah. I think that I'm excited that he's at UT Austin right now teaching and I'm really excited mm-hmm. that hopefully my son who will hopefully go there. Yeah. Will hopefully get to have a class with him. But I have to say in this movie, this is one of those parts I love to watch him in. Yeah. Because it's a more... I dare say comedic, but it's just a little bit more lighthearted. His character has a different happy kind of feel to it. Yeah. Um, And I really enjoy that about him in this film because it's not silly. Yeah. But it's also not heavy. I really like the, I really like funny Matthew McConaughey a lot. Yeah. I think I appreciate funny Matthew McConaughey more than I appreciate like true detective Matthew McConaughey, which was really good, and he was excellent in it, but man, it was so dark and heavy, and he can be really funny, and I enjoy the funny. I like having a character out of him. Yeah. I like the charisma being released, you know, like, okay, like the Lincoln lawyer, very heavy, but his charisma gets to be released, and so I enjoy that a lot, you know. that's that's fair. And then we have a bunch of, like, townspeople, and some of them are actors, and some of them are not, and it's, they they all ring pretty authentic, but this is where we see Matthew McConaughey's mom. Which is amazing. I didn't even realize that that was her, but once I saw, oh, that's her, you could totally tell. Yeah, you can't McConaughey. Good job. (laughs) 
those little montages with the people talking about Bernie and Marjorie and I mean, wait, we're in San Antonio, um, where the Tex meets the Mex, you know, like yeah, the food. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I say that that's a line from the yes, film. We've yes. got to post this. This is the best description of Texas on the planet. And we absolutely must share this. So y'all have to look at our social media and go watch this clip. If you are not going to watch this movie, at least watch this clip of this townsperson in Carthage, Texas, t- describing and explaining Texas. All the different parts of Texas. The carcinogenic coast, uh-huh. the People's Republic of Austin, yeah, the Dallas snobs with their Mercedes. And of course, he forgets the panhandle. Because most people do. Yeah. So who else is in this film? Yeah. <laughs> that, that, those were all the ones I was going to talk about. <laughs> that was it. Oh. Yeah. I mean. So yeah. funny. I obviously... Uh, adore this film so yeah. um in case you're wondering i have i have absolute bias to love everything about this film and i cannot think critically about it at all okay that's just uh, we'll, everybody we'll, be on the same page with me we'll, on that we'll, we'll take that with a grain of salt okay see <laughs> because i really it's so darkly funny it's really really funny and it's at least partially true it is Yes, we'll, we'll get into a true. It. It's true story we'll in general. It. Yeah, we'll get into it. Yes, Bernie did murder Marjorie. Yes, that's and that's, it was in Carthage. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny, but it, Marjorie really did die. Yeah, it is a dark comedy. Yeah, classic. You know, it, it's kind of the same reason I like things like Dexter. Yeah. Dark comedy, absolutely hysterical. And I feel very much about Bernie the way I felt about Dexter. He's so, like, lovable. Yes. And I, I feel bad, like, I didn't feel as bad about Dexter because Dexter's a fictional character who I've been manipulated, sort of, to root for. I know that it's wrong, but he's not a real person. Bernie's a real person. But I don't feel too bad because all these people in Carthage really adored him, even after they found out what he'd done. It does help that the real Bernie is quite repentant. Yes. It is very apologetic, has worked really hard. Like, yeah. the, you know, we'll probably talk about it later, but, you know, his prison record is stellar, like his yeah. help for others. And in fact, he lived with the director after he got out of jail for a while. So, yeah. I mean, this guy is, you know, the yeah. poster child for turning it around. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, we'll get all there. We'll get there. All we'll right, get so there. So let's recap this. It starts with Bernie giving a guest lecture at his alma mater where he studied mortuary science it tells us it's a true story he's given tips on how to you know do makeup and hair and but it's so like respectful and it's so funny but it's so like respectful at the same time like he takes such care with these dead bodies you all can't see this right now but as she's describing this i have tears still holding down my face because this scene is just so Funny. And it, it's hard also because I've sort of been in a similar situation and had to, you know, serve my family by attending to a, a, a loved body. one who had yeah. recently passed. And although it was very sad and I went to kind of help and then I turn around and all I can hear is this monologue that Bernie is giving about a super glue and a little dabble do you. And all of uh-huh. a sudden I'm trying to make sure that nobody sees that I am laughing. Yeah. 
and I'm You're trying tearing to pass up yeah. as I'm, and I just thought, but you know, it was okay. Cause I know that that loved one, um, would have absolutely delighted in my laughter over that. Um, good. so it's okay. But oh my gosh, if I didn't think it was funny before, oh, Lord yeah. help us. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So then we have a whole bunch of people quote being quoted. They're being interviewed and they are just singing Bernie's praises. A lot of these quotes I recognized from the Texas Monthly article that caught Linkletter's eye. Right, the original that's a, article. That's that was... the original article that ran in Texas Monthly that it re- that's made him say, there's a movie here and I want to make it. It was kind of interesting. Um, that was written by Skip Hollinsworth, and he was the uh, co-author of the movie script. Very cool. Well. So he yeah. got to participate. Yes. That's cool. Yes, he did. So Bernie was hired to work in Carthage Funeral Home. Carthage is the town. Over the phone, they did a phone interview and hired him. The, his boss talks about what a great job he did. He was good at removals. He was an artist in body preparation. He was good with the families, both during the planning process and at the gravesite. He was an excellent singer, and he was superb at sales. Yes, Which I superb. was like, hmm... Bernie meets the other primary character in this story, Marjorie Nugent, at the funeral of her husband. Marjorie wasn't particularly well liked. That's an understatement. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, a tiny town and she wasn't on good terms with her family. Bernie was really good with the widows. He was particularly good with the older widows. He would send them flowers. He'd go check on them, pick up medicines, just make sure that they were doing okay in their widowhood. And Marjorie was not an exception to this. This was something that he did frequently. And he kind of becomes friends with her. And she's a woman without many friends. So she's a woman with no friends. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. Bernie's really active and well-liked in the community. He's generous to a fault which we see he buys things that he cannot afford several he sees something he likes he buys several so that he can give them as gifts whether he can afford it or not then we meet danny buck davidson district attorney and he tells us that marjorie bought him a twelve thousand dollar rolex now i did a little snooping it the reports on this vary it may have been a $12,000 Rolex. It may have been a $7,000 Rolex. It may have been a Rolex that belonged to her husband. deceased husband uh-huh. that, he then, that she then gave to Bernie. It's really kind of unclear as to what's what there. At the end of the day, still a Rolex. Bernie and Marjorie are quite the pair. They soon become traveling companions and travel the world. Russia, Acapulco, New York City, Europe, Belize, all first class, all paid for by Marjorie, which is fun. Hashtag goals. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) So Danny Buck believes Bernie to be gay in the early 90s in East Texas. This is an indictment of his character. Right. This is not like just a matter of descripting, (laughs) you know, a person. This is like a judgment. Yes. So we see Danny Buck himself is quite the character. He's got uh, a show of the his wheel of misfortune, which he spins, and then that's how he decides what drug dealer to go after. 
instead of, you know, picking the the one that's the most dangerous or the one that you have the most information on, let's leave it to the wheel of misfortune. The wheel of misfortune. Yeah. And then he stages a car giveaway to catch deadbeat fathers. Okay, this is genius. It, it is genius. And I could not find any information to corroborate whether that actually happened or not. So hysterical. It doesn't matter whether it really happened. It was really funny. It was awesome. I loved it. I love every moment. Mm-hmm. So Marjorie's financial planner doesn't trust Bernie. And Bernie is made Marjorie's sole heir. He's talking to these financial planners, her bankers, all kinds of stuff. They don't really like it, but Marjorie's made it clear that this is how life's going to proceed. And if they don't like it, she'll find somebody else. And she has a lot of money, so they make nice. So then we can begin to see that Marjorie is kind of easy to anger and very controlling of Bernie. She's angered when he doesn't have her medication at dinner and she thinks that he should. I mean, in, in the way it's played in the movie, he's very sweet. I'll be happy to go back and get it for us. It's totally fine. I'll get it for you. And she's just mad. Mad that he didn't think of it ahead yeah. of time. You know, yeah. she's using him for her personal slave. That's how she's portrayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then we fast forward a couple years and we see now that... Bernie is not only her traveling companion, but he works for her. He's dropped down to part-time hours at the funeral home. And he is her personal assistant, basically her servant. But it doesn't come without its perks. True. He's had flying lessons. He's got a pilot's license. He can go flying. And that's not an inexpensive hobby. Then we meet Scrappy Holmes. All these people's names are... True, Danny Buck, Scrappy Holmes. I mean, they get some interesting names out there in Carthage. Carthage. <laughs> he's his defense attorney, and he he talks about Marjorie's controlling behavior. And we come to understand that Bernie really is at her beck and call. Marjorie might also be losing her faculties at this point a little bit. She's yelling at the lawn maintenance man because the flowers didn't bloom on time as if, you know, he set the clock and intentionally made the flowers not bloom. She fired him because she said he was stealing her lawnmower when they, he had spoken with her about how it needed repair. And she agreed that he should take it for repair There's a lot of paranoia. Yeah, there's a lot of paranoia. There's a lot of forgetfulness. There's a lot of um, anger, a lot of fear, it seems like. She makes some racist comment. Marjorie has Bernie learn to use a gun because there are armadillos digging in their flowers. And then she's fussing at him about chores. And he then callously declines an invitation to a dress rehearsal for a show that he's in. So he seems like he's trying to be nice and she's You sense that he's getting worn out. Yeah. You sense his exhaustion, his mental exhaustion. You sense the feeling of being trapped Mm -hmm. coming from him. You can see the efforts he's taking, but he's starting to feel like all the benefits that used to balance things out are becoming chains. Right. And yeah, you start to see everything go south and unravel. Yes. And that's when Bernie snaps and shoots Marjorie 
in the back in her garage. You know, he shoots her. He seems startled in the movie. He's portrayed as startled. But he continues about his daily life. Marjorie isn't missed at first. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. First, um, he makes up some excuses about different things, but really nobody's questioning them. Nobody's really looking for her. And uh, in December, she misses a standing hair appointment. Oh, she tried somebody else. In January, her stockbroker is looking for her. Oh, she's had a series of small strokes and can't talk. April, she's at the Scott and White Nursing Home in Temple, Texas, under an assumed name and does not want to be bothered. And that is why she gave him power of attorney a couple years prior. In case this happened. For this exact reason. So all the while, Bernie is very generous. Not so much with himself, though I think that he did purchase some things for himself and continued to do things like fly a plane, but he helped struggling businesses. He helped people who needed cars. He made a big donation to the church. Bernie remains in his modest home. It was a small two-bedroom house. So finally, in August, it's been more than nine months since anyone has can confirm that they've seen Marjorie. The sheriff, a financial advisor, and some family members have a locksmith open the door to the house, and they search, and they're looking around, and things don't really look abnormal, maybe a little quiet. You know how a lived-in home has a different feel than a non-lived-in home. Yeah, it It has this dormant feeling. Yeah, but then they see the chest freezer, and it's taped shut. Why would it be taped to shut? They open it up, and what do they find? Marjorie under the vegetables. They find Bernie. He's talking to a little league team. He confesses. Yeah, it just, does not take much to get him to confess. No, he's like outright. Yeah, like yes, I did it. Crying. It's the whole. It's the whole mess. And nobody in town wants him convicted. Nope. Nobody. Well, everybody kind of hated her. Yeah. As the person says in the beginning, there are people in town who would have shot her for $5. Yes. Mm -hmm. She was a not well-liked person. Uh, It seems like it. So Danny Buck seeks to get the trial moved, which is really unusual for a district attorney to want to get the trial moved. Usually they move it because the person can't get fair, fair trial because there's been too much press about how the person is guilty. And he is seeking to get it moved because Bernie is too well liked in town and he will not get a conviction in the town. It's baffling. Baffling. Okay. Okay. It's baffling. Yeah. So it gets moved to about 50 miles away, San Augustine County, which they dubbed the squirrel hunting capital of the world, which I think is an indictment of their uh, intelligence. There were a few indictments of their intelligence Uh, uh, in the movie. Yes. So a granddaughter testifies tearfully, but then also admits estrangement. And having sued her 
sued her grandmother for a trust fund. Yes. Yeah. Bernie testifies on his own behalf, and I'm not an attorney, and I'm not giving you legal advice, but if you're ever in this situation, do not testify on your own behalf. It is a poor choice. I know. I know that's true. I know people say that, and yet I... I fully understand why somebody would want to testify. He wasn't contesting his guilt. No, he was trying to mitigate his sentence. Unsuccessfully. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a DA over there totally had it. Yeah, yeah. So it's and twisted his words, and oh, it was so maddening. Yeah, well, and the defense paints Marjorie as controlling and cruel. The prosecution characterizes Bernie as greedy. Bernie's found guilty. The people of Carthage are, by and large, quite sad. Bernie serves as a choir director and is active in his church activities and taught classes. He has really made the best of prison. Yeah, he was uh, helping people get their GED, tutoring, yeah. stand-up. Yeah. He was a stand-up guy in prison. Yep. Roger Ebert. Love this movie. Three, as he should. As he should. We would have had fights from beyond the grave. I'd have gone out and gotten him if he didn't like this movie. He, he, Roger Ebert said, I would buy a used coffin from this man. <laughs> I love Roger Ebert so much. God rest his soul. Jack Black plays an East Texas funeral director named Bernie T.D. and is surely one of the performances of the year. I had to forget what I knew about Black. He creates this character out of thin air, and it's like nothing he's done before, and it proves that an actor can be a miraculous thing in the right role. Aww. Aww. Yeah. Aver, I'm just amazed. That was beautiful. Yeah, good job. And I fully agree. Yes, absolutely. All right, well, we're going to get into... The reality of stuff, the what happened, did it happen, how did it happen stuff right after this quick break. I'm Christy. And this is Josh. And we are the Mountains and the Sea. It's a podcast about Prince and his vast musical output. We look at each and every Prince album. And ancillary material like fashion, videos, related artists, B-sides, remixes, outtakes. We choose a high, the mountain, a low, the sea, and a time capsule. Yeah, those are her dumb rules, not mine. Josh is a Prince superfan and has been since long before I met him. That's right, and I pulled Christy over to the purple side with my wit and my charm. The music helped. (laughs) Join us every other week, anywhere you get your podcasts, and happy purple listening, friends. All right, so, the is it real? Well, we can't start anywhere if we don't start with the Texas Monthly article by Skip Hollinsworth. And he ended up being co-author of the screenplay. This is what brought it to Linkletter's imagination. It was in the January 1998 issue, so a couple years after his first trial. (laughs) The city councilman, Olin Jaffrayan, is quoted in the article as saying, from the day the deep freeze was opened, you haven't been able to find anyone in town saying, poor Mrs. Nugent. People here are saying, poor Bernie. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. So here it is, you know, is Marjorie mischaracterized in the movie? Maybe. I mean, because obviously Bernie saw something in her. I think that maybe the movie tries to make obvious a dynamic that can't be obvious. Okay. 
in a short amount of time. People who lived around him had experienced her controlling nature over him because they... They experienced him having to drop everything. They experienced him getting the phone calls. Yeah, but that even even that wasn't till later when well, they no. first met. He like he saw something in her. Oh yeah, I'm and just saying like, that like it takes time yeah. for that toxicity to develop. Right, and so I think that's why the town was so on his side because they remember when things were better mm. and then watched her turn into the abuser and they right. always thought she was kind of a crappy person to begin with. Right. They never quite understood why Bernie took such an interest. They in never her. quite understood that, but they did see the positive effects of it. Right. And then they saw the emotional and verbal abuse start to develop. And so in a movie, I think it was probably demonstrated more harshly, but that's because they had to overtly show this toxicity that takes time yeah. for people to understand. Bernie had pretty sad childhood, actually. His mother died in a car wreck when he was three. His father moved the family to Abilene after he remarried. It was Bernie and his sister. And then his father passed away when he was just 15 after a long illness. Yeah. And that's kind of how he ended up getting interested in the funeral home business was because he... Uh, took an after-school job at the Abilene Funeral Home, first doing yard work, and then they found that he had a talent for helping people at funerals. Um, Maybe because he'd experienced loss early and he had a natural propensity and I I think a kind spirit in a lot of ways. So he did receive an associate's degree in mortuary science from McNeese State University in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I love Lake Charles. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah. It's a like it's a nice little town. Yeah, it's got some unique things too. Yeah, it does. He was particularly empathetic to the ladies who were become widowed. They lost their husband. Carthage has a lot of well-to-do widows who've inherited a lot of money from their husbands, and they're a lively, spirited bunch. So they're kind of fun to be around. Um, but he wasn't just partial to the wealthy widows. He he gave sort of the same treatment to all of them. You know, he kept, he checked on everybody, whether wealthy or not. Of Marjorie, Lloyd Tiller, one of her stockbrokers, said, if she liked you, she sent lovely birthday cards and thank you notes, but you had to cater to Margie and constantly flatter her. She could throw a temper tantrum if everything didn't go her way. Margie was a difficult woman to love. All right. I'm going to tell you, I have had people like Marjorie in my life. Uh-huh. So in my family, the way Shirley MacLaine plays this, it's really reminiscent. Yeah. She does a really good job. Really good job. She may have known somebody in her life. I think she must have. Not (laughs) dissimilar. Well, it's funny because this is how I know it's well written because the way that Bernie treats her is how I had to treat Mm -hmm. people growing up. Yeah. In order to keep peace. Yeah. You know, Ooh. so it's very interesting how um, mm. how people like Bernie have that natural ability to sort of befriend that difficult personality, mm-hmm. but that personality is wow. Well, a teacher at the high school said she really wasn't all that unfriendly, but she didn't go out of her way to be friendly. So comparatively, in Carthage, that made her unfriendly. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. So Bernie 
told people later that he could really see the loneliness in her face at her husband's funeral. And that's really what softened his heart towards her. And she was, he was the only one who took an active interest in her after her husband's funeral because she was strange from her family and, you know, didn't have a lot of friends. So he really did earn his pilot's license. He actually bought a couple of planes or Marjorie bought planes for him. He really did have a knockdown, drag out a little bit with the stockbrokers. Not going to believe it. Yeah, the the stockbroker is quoted as telling Bernie, you're nothing but an undertaker, which I'm like, oh, elitist much? Come on, man. Undertaker? Uh, Yeah. How archaic. Archaic? And I mean, don't... We need, you can't look down on jobs. No. I'm sorry. Every every job needs doing. You got to be respectful of the human being doing it. Just because you happen to make a lot of money as a stockbroker doesn't mean that you're not going to need a funeral director at the end of your life, you know, once you're gone. I know. Well, you're going to need that. Don't you want a good one? Undertaker Maybe is going to be in control belittle. one day. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't use Maybe super glue at pe- that guy's funeral. Yeah. Maybe not this particular undertaker. <laughs> this is, uh, things are a little different here. They talk about Bernie as a Robin Hood, that he slipped Miss Nugent's money out of her accounts and was doing the helping while she was still alive. He was buying people cars. He was, you know, pledging money to the uh, scholarships at a local college, the church, struggling couples, the trophy shop, all that stuff. A lot of that was happening while she was still alive. Mm-hmm. So he was taking that money during her life. They In the movie, it really seemed like it all happened in the nine months between when he killed her and when she was found. Did she know about it? Because I thought I... Don't, I, I don't know. I thought I read something... So I don't know. I, I may not be it's, well informed on that, but I thought that she kind of knew and gave him a little permission to do. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, yeah, maybe it's it, it's difficult. The time to. I mean, she's not here to tell us. No. So, sometime in 1995, Bernie told his sister that he thought Mrs. Nugent was developing a mild dementia. In talking to her, he also said, she's so controlling, it just wears me down. She asked him why he didn't quit, and he said, because I'm her only friend, I have to stay, I'm the only one she has. I was like, that's, you know, that kind of devotion is very sweet, but it's also very reminiscent of what you see in abusive relationships. It's often a unhealthy response that sounds benevolent. (laughs) Yeah. It is, you know, troubling a little bit that he did kind of carry on that he went, he really did sing beautiful dreamer, but it looks like it was uh, with a Shreveport chamber singers group, not necessarily at a A pageant of some sort. Okay. But can we, can we stop and admire Jack Black? Sure. Because Jack Black's uh, version of this in the movie is on the soundtrack. Uh And, oh, yeah, he he does such a good job. He really does. It's uh, just, his voice is lovely. He does. He has a lovely voice. You forget because he's funny and goofy. And yet here he is 
whipsing beautiful dreamer with a lovely voice. Yeah. Well, we think of him from like Tenacious D or from School of Rock. If you're not a Tenacious D fan, I get that. A lot of people aren't into like that kind of well, sarcastic, funny music, you know, whatever. Right. But like, if you've seen him in School of Rock, you might notice him as a either a falsetto singer or like a hard rock kind of singer, monster ballad. But actually, he has so much capability vocally. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So in the article, it claims that uh, it was early July of 1997 when an un unidentified Carthage woman called the sheriff's office and said, really, nobody's seen Mrs. Nugent. Now, in the movie, it was the stockbroker financial advisor guy who was chasing the stuff down. But there was a an actual phone call from somebody who was concerned about her in the community because it was Bernie and he was so well-liked and because it was Mrs. Nugent who was not well-liked. It took them over a month or almost a month to actually like go and check it out. And they did bring the the family, the, uh, her son and his eldest daughter. And that, you know, that's when they found her body in the freezer and Bernie did admit to it right away. He did say she'd become hateful and possessive, which is not a valid excuse, but Danny Buck was quoted in the article saying a couple of people have said to me that Bernie deserves to fry for what he's done, but I know there are a lot more who just want the whole thing to go away. They keep asking me if there isn't some extenuating circumstances that would help his defense. And I think good God almighty, do people really think Mrs. Nugent was so mean to him that he would had to shoot her in the back in self-defense. It's hard because it, it does, it does look like a domestic abuse case. And when women are on trial for this kind of, um, you know, break from reality, this kind of overarching sort of rage that bubbles up in that moment where they might see this one opportunity to kind of get out. And those people are tried. I mean, they're, they're charged, but the sentence, the the whole responsibility is sort of mitigated yeah. by the fact that that they've been in this abusive relationship and that you know, I don't know. Does that apply here? I know she's a tiny little 81-year-old woman. I, I don't know. All I right, don't know. So that wasn't really the end of the story, though. No, There's, it continues. <laughs> it keeps going. An attorney for the family, Chad Baruch, uh, wrote an article of May of 2019 talking about like how things kind of developed and they were having a, well, Bernie ended up getting released in 2014 and having another trial in 2016, a sentencing trial, I think. Before Bernie was released, the family didn't know that he was about to be released. Yeah, it happened it was, kind of fast on that side of it. I think, I think so. And like nobody had contacted them. That his new attorney, Bernie's new attorney, had gone over the evidence that had been collected from his home and found some books about uh, abuse. And she got TD to admit that he'd been um, sexually abused as a child by a family member, was then evaluated by a professional health professional and all of this happened and nobody told the family which i don't know if you need to know but nobody did i mean i if it were if it 
I were in that situation, I'd probably want somebody to tell me yeah, that, that this things was happening. Are happening. Yeah. TD filed uh, an application for a writ of habeas corpus, which basically asks that your sentence be reduced to time already served because of this sexual abuse as a child. District attorney Danny Buck Davidson agreed to this. So the very district attorney who put him away in the first place uh, agreed to have this hearing conducted. Hey, that doesn't count against him. He just needed to win the trial. Yeah. After that. Yeah. Whatever, (laughs) man. That's right. All right, all right, all right. (laughs) Davidson said had he known about the childhood abuse that he would have been looking for a lighter sentence that it might have made the situation more understandable (laughs) when they ended up going back to court. So he was released in 2014, lived in Linkletter's garage apartment in Austin for a couple years and then had to go back for this new trial. Uh, Mr. Baruch said he wanted to make sure that some particular facts were made known to this second jury. That before T.D. became friends with Marjorie, that he and became her companion, he was in financial distress. He was in a bad way, which I think we were shown in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. After he murdered her, he seemed like the same old Bernie to everybody in the months after he murdered Marjorie and put her in the freezer, he threw parties in her home, which is a little weird. Because what if somebody went to go get some ice? Maybe that's why it was taped, taped shut. shut. Oh, he did cash checks made out to her. He sought a wire transfer in the amount of $225,000. He bought gifts for friends, invested in businesses. During his sentencing testimony, he was asked if Marjorie was mean to him. And he replied, I wouldn't exactly say mean. So they're like, oh, maybe it, maybe the abuse wasn't that bad. Maybe Bernie is a gentleman in, of the East Texas variety and is unwilling to speak ill of both the dead and a woman. He did take a trip to Nashville that he accompanied another elderly wealthy widow while she while Marjorie was in the freezer. So that's a little damning. Yeah, a little bit. The Court of Criminal Appeals had a pretty divided idea about this. They didn't grant Bernie a release. They said they had a new sentencing trial. So it was either, it was not whether he was going to be found guilty or not. He'd already been found guilty. It was to determine whether the sentencing was appropriate. Right. He did get his second trial. The prosecutors this time were able to present all of the financial information this second time. A lot of that had been excluded from the first trial, and the prosecution was basically saying that Bernie stole millions of dollars from Marjorie and that she was about to find out. She was about to have a meeting with a financial advisor where accounts that she thought had millions in them were down to almost nothing. And she was about to find out. And that is why he killed her. And that is the jury agreed. 
and he is now serving the rest of his life in prison. Yikes. Yeah. So, granddaughter Shanna Nugent, the, the one who testified at Bernie's trial, also had some things to say in 2014. This was around the time of his release. She said, the fictional film has so influenced the life and death of my grandmother that the media often quotes the scenes as fact. We call it a callous crime to all victims. And then she quotes Bernie's confession in here. I'm going to read this little bit that she quoted to you because it's worth noting. I had thoughts of hitting Marjorie in the head with a bat or anything for a couple of months prior to November 19th, 1996, the day that he killed her. I did, but I did not want her to suffer. Marjorie had a rifle in the freezer closet. I had moved the rifle to the bathroom near the garage. She had walked out into the garage towards my car. I took the rifle and shot Marjorie in the back. She felt face first. Marjorie was still breathing heavily, so I shot her again. I may have shot her one more time. I did not want her to suffer. Then I dragged Marjorie by the feet from the garage to the freezer. I had taken the food from the freezer. I placed her into the freezer and covered her with the food. I took a water hose and washed the blood from the garage and swept at the bullets along with some leaves and threw them away. Linkletter's movie would have you believe that my grandmother deserved her murder. My grandmother didn't deserve to be murdered. And I say, I agree. You agree? I, I agree that she didn't deserve to be murdered. Oh, well, of course. That's one of those, both things are true. Yeah. She like, might have been awful. He might have really felt abused. He might have comforted himself and by using her money as her benefit and then... Yeah feared being found out, but also felt very controlled and kind of had lost a grip on what was right and what was wrong. And she was really, really mean. And still she didn't deserve to be murdered and he was wrong for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. This is like a D all of the above. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, she wasn't the only family member to have an opinion about this. So there was a nephew, Joe Rhodes had a bit of a different perspective on Marjorie that he shared publicly. He wrote an article for the New York Times in 2012. So he says, the widow in the freezer was, in real life, my Aunt Marge, my mother's sister, and depending on who you ask, the meanest woman in East Texas. She'd always been kind of cold-hearted. It was not an unfitting end. Which I'm like, <laughs> ouch. Dang. Ouch. Wow. So he said... When informed that Marge had died, the first thing my Aunt Sue, Marge's other sister, was, what a relief. Ouch. So he said Shirley MacLaine looked a little bit like his Aunt Marge, but that really it was the way she pursed her lips and the way she set her eyes when she went into character he said, I'd seen that face before. Yeah, it was there's unnerving. a particularness to it. I have to say, because I knew people like this, because I had people really just, you know, majorly like one individual in my life. But yeah. um, that face is so, I mean, Shirley McLean nailed it. Yeah. Uh, it's so creepy. Yeah. And it's different than like, say, the way that she portrayed, you know, that meanness in other films, you mm-hmm. know, that sassiness. It's different. Yeah. There's something... 
extremely unnerving and unsettling about that particular type of face. And I don't know, it hits me right to my core. Yeah. I mean, I, I bet. Joe goes on to say that when he was 14, he was visiting her and she got angry with him and locked him in her house for two days and wouldn't let him call home. And it was a housekeeper who eventually took pity on him. And that was the last time he went to Aunt Marge's house. Well, good. Yeah. That was the last time. Yeah. And Aunt Marge didn't have a daughter of her own and very much wanted one because she liked to sew and shop and things. Tried to have um, his parents declared as unfit for her. And accused accused Joe's father of being an alcoholic, which wasn't true. So I'm like, Ooh. again, maybe she thought money could buy her whatever she wanted, and that um, maybe she get angry. I don't know. I think I, know. I think people like that, and I know that's so exclusive to say that, but people, people that- like that, people with this kind of personality, this kind of profile, I don't know. I feel like just money makes it worse. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, because they think they can buy whatever they want, and they really... It gives them a lot more entrances to people Mm. that otherwise people may not put up with. For instance, Bernie. He would have been nice to her, and he would have probably been doing what he normally does, but the enticement was overwhelming for him. Yeah. He talks about the relationship between his mother and his Aunt Marge. And that he even, he didn't realize how bad it was until after Marjorie had passed away. And that during her funeral services and things, that his mother never said a bad word about Marjorie, only had kind things to say, welcomed mourners, whatever, you know. But she said that his mother said... She hated your father. I think she hated everybody. I don't know why she was ugly to so many people, but she was. She was. His mother was afraid of her, and he believes that his grandmother was also afraid of Marjorie, that she'd been manipulative and cruel for a very long time. We get a hint of this in the movie, because Linklater does include one of the characters, which is her sister. And and so Bernie is friends with the sister in the movie. I right. don't know whether they had really connected or not, but at some point the sister does talk to him and say, I, you know, I love you, Bernie, but uh, we haven't seen her and people are freaking out. So there was this like hint that um, even family members knew that she was sort of missing, but also kind of was like, eh. yeah, Yeah, <laughs> they weren't overly concerned. Joe had seen the movie a couple times. And he said, except for a few insignificant details, it tells the story pretty much as it happened, which I think he's alone. Well, not alone, but not in the majority in the family, at least publicly. Well, this girl, let's remember, she's going to hate this movie because she, this granddaughter, was portrayed awfully. Yeah. I mean, she, she was really portrayed was. to be a terrible person yeah, and a she, gold digger. Yeah, yeah. So was. I can imagine that she hates it because she probably doesn't see it that way. Right. But at some point, she did sue the grandmother. So obviously... Maybe rightfully so. We don't know. But we also know that they didn't have a close relationship. And therefore, there was no way of her mending that and being able to repair that relationship in a way that would allow her access to that money. Yeah. Yeah. So it was all gone. So I I can imagine that 
she would be very bitter. Not that it negates her perspective on it, right? But it does expand the story a bit, you know. Yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit about psychology. Yeah, Our psychology break. Let's do. Holy moly. People are hard. And people are hard. So Marjorie was largely estranged from her family. Maybe she had good reason. A lot of people who are estranged from their families do. Indeed. Yes. Minda Zetlin wrote this article, Estranged from Your Family, Here's Why You Should Stop Feeling Guilty. It's common. Yeah, it's more common than I think people realize. Yeah, a British survey from 2014 said 19% of the people who responded said they themselves or had relatives who had no contact with their family at all. 20% almost. That's a lot. One in every five people. It's a lot of people. Yeah. They probably have a good reason. Most people. Most people do. They might be trying to save themselves from a dysfunctional situation physical or emotional abuse, they've been betrayed or sabotaged, they're criticized or shamed routinely. Those are all reasons that are absolutely valid to stop having a relationship. Whether those criticisms are valid or not, nobody wants to be criticized all the time. Well, no. If it's coming across that way, there's a problem. Right. And of course, this prevalence rate, I mean, when they take these surveys, what they're saying is at that moment in time, this was the case. So it may be that you might be estranged for a time and then come back. But to have a prevalence rate that says at any given moment, 20%, that's huge. That's That's a lot. That's a lot. And even if people are estranged for... A stupid reason that it may be a valid one. So (laughs) (laughs) explain that. that, Like that things are never really as simple as they appear. And so resentments and disagreements build up over time. So one of the examples they give in this article is somebody brought the wrong dessert and now the family (laughs) don't talk to one another. But really, it's been something that's built up for a long time. This person knew that this dessert was not welcome. And it was a pattern of disrespect that that was the last straw. And it seems like a stupid thing. But really, it was it was just the last thing in a long series of poor behavior on someone's part. So they probably also gave the people a lot of chances to make it better because that's what people do. These things don't happen overnight usually, and they reduce contact until they eventually cut it off. That is very true. Yeah. I would say that goes for family and even friendships or even work relationships and things like that. I mean, people generally, I think, um, and I don't have numbers for this at all, no. but I think in general, there is a slew of things yeah. that that kind of inform a decision. Well, you I know? know, there's people in my life who I was gave a lot of chances to and tried to help and do things, and they continually behaved in ways that I'm like, I I can't help you. I can't do anything else for you. What this relationship is damaging to me, and it's not helpful to you. So. That's it. Yeah. I mean, people have to acknowledge how hard it is because we more often encounter that kind of issue than we do the overt, very clear, you know, and that's why things like certain types of domestic abuse are so difficult because, you know, people who are in verbal and emotional situations where it's a toxic environment, sometimes if you were to tell them, you know, well, at least you're not being punched in the face, this was kind of a 
profile and a response that was done a while ago before we really understood it. Right. Those people would respond like, I wish. Yeah. I wish they just punched me in the face because then it'd be over. It'd be clear. I could just leave. Nobody would have a question. It's that teetering that we struggle with. And so we have to build up our evidence to say, oh, okay, over time, I've seen this pattern. I need to make a decision. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. It's hard to hold on to that. It's hard to understand it. It's hard to stay objective about it and not start adding other things that didn't really relate into yeah. that. It's just... It's, it's like, like when you're... Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. It's like when you're fighting, you're supposed to fight about the one thing. Right. You're not supposed to like bring up all their other unrelated indiscretions. It's okay to bring up something that contributed legitimately to that particular situation, but you can't be like, well, you brought bought me that stupid sweater and it wasn't the right size and you know that I hate yellow and Right. You can't whatever. noodle too much. Yeah. And yet we do noodle because we're searching for the patterns that make it clear. Right. So we can make a decision. Yeah. We just want it to be obvious. Yeah. And it's so rarely obvious. Yeah. It's rarely so cut and dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A psychiatrist said that at his sentencing hearing in 2016 that Bernie up snapped after years of abuse and not just from Marjorie. Dr. Richard Pesikoff is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And he said, it's a strange, unpredictable event brought on by intense emotional experiences. That's how he explained Marjorie's murder. Now, the prosecutors portrayed T.D. as a greedy con man who was covering up stealing millions of dollars from Marjorie. And the uh, defense attorneys said that the popular church singer suffered years of sexual abuse and was a closeted gay man and that those things led to that. So let's talk about that sexual abuse a little bit. They called it a dissociative episode that basically Bernie didn't know what he was doing. The prosecution said that because he shot her from in the back from across the garage and then walked over to her and shot her several more times that they didn't think it could be a dissociative episode. I think that we leave that determination to professionals you have to. You can't determine anything. I will say mm-hmm. though that there's no time limit on a dissociative episode, right? So it's unfair to say that just because it took a certain amount of time that it right. wasn't, or that he had to travel several feet to shoot her again. No, like, that could yeah. all legitimately be part of it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it totally was either. Right? So I mean, he still could have been in the dissociative episode when he put her in the freezer. He still could have been. Yeah, for He's, sure. I mean, just because you're behaving in an erratic manner doesn't mean that you're going to behave irrationally. Correct. Yeah. So this quotes the Texas Tribune with Richard Pesikoff's testimony. He concluded that it was a result of a dissociative episode brought on when Nugent's allegedly abusive behavior eroded TD's abilities to suppress his emotions. He was also able to go on as if nothing happened because as a closeted gay man in East Texas in the early 90s, he was very good at suppressing the emotions that he was very able to compartmentalize. And that is why he seemed so normal because he may not have been feeling that way inside, but because he had done this acting for so long 
He was quite good at it. Yes. Well, and it's interesting to note, you know, the buildup. Because even in his confession, you Mm -hmm. sort of see that. Yeah. I had dreamed of this. You see it's starting to break. Yeah. I had dreamed of this. I had dreamed of these things. You start to see that in his mind, he had already started to play out his escape route or how things might resolve in a way that he would be free. That he was already not so much suppressing that emotion anymore. That he was allowing it to... come to his mind at least for a time. And so we can see the devolvement. <laughs> yeah. Elmer Doucette was Bernie's uncle. Three other men had said that they had also been sexually abused by this gentleman. Maybe not a gentleman. Maybe he's oh, not, yeah, a maybe gentleman. not a gentleman. This man. This man. Let's just call him a man because that's technically correct so <laughs> they they fight they did file charges against him in 2011 in the louisiana district court but the uncle said well those charges went away because my attorney filed to suppress the motion and the attorney the other attorney said that that really the statute of limitations had expired and that's why it was dropped and he was never convicted of anything but Shortly after Bernie went to prison, he wrote a letter with suggestive statements in it to Bernie. And they, they said, well, look, this is evidence of that he had a sexual relationship with Bernie at one point. And, of course, the uncle denies that. He says he doesn't remember ever having sexual relations with yeah. him. They asked him, they had him read some of these suggestive statements aloud in court. And they were like, well, if you didn't have sexual relationship with him, then why did you write these things? I made up the whole thing because I knew that Bernie liked it. I knew most of the content. I knew he would like to hear it. How did you know that? Because I knew he was gay. So he says that his suggestive things that he wrote referencing the abuse that Bernie suffered from age 12 to age 18 was all made up because he thought Bernie would like it. Okay. You're just. That's really creepy. Yeah, it's awful. I don't like him. No, I don't don't like him either. Yeah. Studies kind of indicate that childhood abuse can indeed contribute to violence in adulthood, which makes sense. There was an increased risk. We've talked about this before. Risk does not equal causation. Causation that childhood abuse increases antisocial behavior in people. Well, and it's important to note, like this is another one of those situations with statistics we have to be very careful about because a lot of people who end up in these situations like Bernie did, do have abuse in their past. Right. But the vast majority of people who have been abused do not end up in situations like Bernie did. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, all bananas are fruit, but not all fruit are bananas. Yes. So you have to be very careful with the statistics and and understanding that. And really, you just got to look at it that people with maltreatment histories are more likely to perpetuate sexual and physical intimate partner violence, which I don't think that there was a sexual relationship between Marjorie and Bernie. No, I don't think so. But they did have an intimate partner relationship. Right. So uh, that he had a risk factor because of his abuse and because of the way she 
is purported to have treated him that if he had not been abused, he might have had the wherewithal to walk away or been able to stand it longer. And that's the point about the risk factors, yeah. right? Is that the risk factors create a a combination that mm-hmm. makes you a little bit more flammable. Right. Right. And so, you know, that's kind of the thing. It's not a cause, but given the right circumstances, they can ignite. Yeah. And that's kind of what we see here. There we go. Sorry. So real life. Let's talk about some real life stuff. Bernie was an excellent funeral director. He was. And funeral directory directors have some idiosyncrasies in their profession. You'd think when they go to pick up a body that they pick it up in a hearse. But if they're picking up a body from a home, they typically use a minivan. Yeah. And that hearses are only for ceremonial purposes. That if they're just picking up a body, they're going to pick them up in a van, a panel van or a minivan. So next time you drive next to a minivan with all of its seats flat, you might be driving next to a dead body. Nice. Um, Honestly, can I just say I'm really glad they do that? Yeah. I'm glad they do that because you know what? It's weird to drive around advertising the whole, there's a dead body here. Like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and cloak that a little bit. We don't need to know it every single time. No, no, we really, we really do not. That sweet look on the deceased person's face did indeed take some work. And that super glue is indeed a secret weapon. Handy dandy. Handy dandy. (laughs) Um, You might want to think twice about the protective caskets. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is a very interesting subject. Uh, yeah, well, you know, they guarantee them, which I don't know how the guarantee works. Because are you exhuming a lot of people, What you know, that you want to protect them from the outside elements? Okay, so no. Okay, so some of the, the caskets, uh-huh. um, when they're not a certain weight, not a certain uh, ceiling, uh-huh. when you have areas of the country. Now, some, some areas of the country, it really is kind of almost worth it. Okay. Some areas of the country, not so much. But if you have flooding in certain areas, okay. and then all of a sudden, oh. the caskets float to the top. And then because they're not really well sealed or they're not really well contained, um, they pop open and your loved one may be floating with the fishes again. Um, And so in that case, you do want to call in a warranty because a new casket is expensive. So if you have a casket that was ruined in the flood and cannot be reburied or cannot be reused or whatever, that warranty does come in handy because it can kind of kick in for the reburial and the movement of the cemetery to a non-flooded environment. But the hope is that by buying one that's like, you know, really well designed, that even if there is a deep flood, that it will stay in place. But most caskets are not put in the ground ground. They're put in in, in a... cement box almost like yeah. those things are uh, the whole plot is kind of protected it's depending yeah. on the area yeah but then you have places like um new orleans where you yeah. go and you can tour the cemeteries right and what you learn there is that you can't bury there because it will it'll just rise right up out the ground it was really creepy so that's why they do everything above ground you know mm-hmm. um which is a whole rabbit trail of interesting things including nick cage because nick cage has a big big plot there like a mausoleum type uh-huh, thing? like one of the big... Really? He has a, it's a big pyramid. And you can go see Nick Cage's grave. He's not even there yet, y'all. <laughs> but it's there. You can go visit it? You can go... Really? I visited it. Oh, yeah. It's really funny. Wow. It's really okay. creepy. So, yeah. So, in some ways, it's not really necessary, especially in certain areas. But uh, depending on the area, it kind of might be worth it. Well, maybe, maybe 
not, because sometimes caskets explode if they're too well sealed. Well, yes, you do need a little ventilation. Uh, yeah, so they'll like literally blow the lids off caskets or the doors off crypts yeah. if they're too well sealed. So We have lots of gases inside of us, yeah. and so when we start to decompose, yeah. Yeah. again, you have a mix of flammability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so when you're at a funeral... You're going to probably see the deceased under rose-colored lights that mortuary schools teach color theory and stage lighting because it's difficult to get people to look naturally alive. So they have stage lighting to compensate for that. I literally just did a funeral. And yes, my, Uh my colored lights were set on a nice pink uh huh. Reddish. To, yeah, to kind of give them a yeah. rosy, mm-hmm. ethereal. I did glow. like a little. I had like a red surrounded, like surrounded, like a nice night, a warm white okay. that gave it like that dreamy look. Okay. So it was almost washed out a bit. Oh. So that you had that angelic kind of washed out oh. with the red. Uh-huh. So oh, that oh. was why. That's my token right oh. there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But to okay. tell you the truth, I'll do the same thing for our praise team because some mornings we need help looking alive. <laughs> You know, so it can be hard to be a friend to someone who's a funeral director because uh, death doesn't wait and they're probably going to disappoint you because they're going to get a call and have to go. And, you know, that could be your wedding, that could be your birthday celebration, uh, child's performance, things like that. Your grandparents hip joint or artificial medical replacement part could become a road sign Oh, that if people are cremated, then you're entitled to ask for those uh, replacement joints back. But most people don't. Of course. Uh, Yeah. Because what are you going to do with a new hip joint? I mean, is there a black market for this? I I don't think so. But you can ask for it back. But if you don't ask for it back... They're donated and melted into road signs and car parts. Okay. That is, um, that's weird. Oh, I think it's like kind of great recycling. (laughs) I know that in my mind. (laughs) The next time I see a stop sign, it is not going to be the same experience. (laughs) Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, So if you feel the need, you can... Right to Bernie TD in prison. They have instructions on his Facebook page, and they do suggest that you donate to his JPay store account so that he can have uh, funds for paper and postage to be able to write you back. I haven't written him. No, I you did, haven't, huh? I did think about it a little bit, and I thought. I don't know that I, I know he seems like a very nice man who just was in a bad situation, but he's still a convicted murderer. I just feel bad telling him that we were writing from killer fun. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I feel like I was like passive aggressive somehow. I don't know. It's just really creepy. Yeah, a little bit. Because I thought about it and I thought, should I give him a say? Nah. I, I don't think we've been overly harsh to him. Oh, we have not. I don't think so. Actually, I do feel... Like maybe writing him would be an interesting experience. I, I do too. I mean, if you decide 
and you get a response, we'll absolutely oh, read it. Please if let any, us know. If anybody writes, like, do send it to us. Please. And you can find us on social media on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, the intersection of crime and entertainment. Or you can f- send me an email at killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. I kind of wanted to know if there was specific reasons behind killing elderly people. If there was like a pathological sort of cross-generational thing why you might kill people. It's called a senicide or gerontocide. Those are two different terms for killing the elderly. And I think it's... uh, actually kind of rare that people would specifically target an elderly person. There's not a lot of data about this, but there is a kind of a disturbing trend among the elderly, which is that murder suicides are on the rise. Interesting and very sad. Uh, Homicide suicide rates among couples 55 and older has increased tenfold since 1988. Okay. So does it mention, is this because we're keeping better records of this or is it really just on the rise? I think it's on the rise. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. That's my understanding. There wasn't a lot of other numbers, but they think that it's pretty representative. I wonder, I mean, what's causing this or what do they think maybe Um, is contributing? Well, you might want to think that it's like people who romantically choose to meet oblivion together. And that's actually not really the case that most of the time it's involving a depressed controlling husband who shoots a wife with medical conditions Oh, and then kills himself. Yeah. So, yeah. Just... Oh, I got, I got so many words. Well, and it's like, I guess it's particularly prevalent among people who are like 55 to 65 who've not yet qualified for Medicare and they're having significant medical bills. They're not working because they're too old to be hired. I was wondering about the economic pressure. Yeah, that that's, that seems like there's a lot of it, that there's a lot of looming medical bills, things like that. So they give some situations that adult children should be aware of. And if you're at all concerned that there's things that you can do, you should absolutely ask them about it that you're not giving them ideas, just like we don't give teenagers ideas about suicide. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. Talk to them that some of the risk factors that you should be aware of is there. It's a couple that's been married a long time and the husband typically has a dominant personality that the husband's a caregiver of a wife with a memory disorder, Alzheimer's or the like Uh, one or both have medical problems and the health status of one of them is changing. So somebody's getting worse. They're talking about a move to an assisted living or a nursing home. And that's either being discussed or pending. That's a particularly vulnerable time. The couple is really socially isolated, withdrawing from friends, family, not doing social activities that they once did. If the couple has been arguing or talking about divorce, that also might be 
a risk factor. So interesting. What's interesting though is that on that list really isn't a financial distress or anything, even though it's a contributing factor, it doesn't yeah. seem to be the high the risk factor. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So next time. Next time. Next time we're going to watch season one, episode one of Cults and Extreme Belief. And it's about Nexium, which is a self-help cult led by Keith Rainier. Now, if you want to do a Google search of it, or you want to search on the A&E website where you can watch this, you can watch the full episode on aetv.com. You're going to not search Nexium like the heartburn medication. <laughs> it's not the purple pill. No, no. Um, you're going to need to search for N-X-I-V-M. Yeah, this is... Interesting. I use that word a lot. Yeah. I need to find a new word for that because okay. it's it's not interesting. It's, it's, it's troubling. Troubling. It's fascinating. It's heartbreaking. It, there's been a lot of movement on this recently Keith Rainier's in prison and um there are famous people who've gotten involved in this and yeah it's whew. yeah there's no words for this I don't know I is mean, there a word go go on on Facebook and tell me what the word is because yeah. I don't know but there's a word for this and right now all I can think is like Magenta you know it's everything Magenta. that's a golden girls reference <laughs> How did I? How did I not guess that? Hey, you don't know what that is. It's probably related to the Golden, Golden Girls because you're talking to Jackie. Well, because Dorothy was having uh, a lot of different conflicting feelings, and Blanche walks her through it and was like, "I call that Magenta." She says, "You know, because you're not really green with envy. You're not really blue, sad. You're not really jealous. You're not really yellow with jealousy. It's Magenta." <sighs> and she goes, "And I hate the color Magenta." So that's what she calls it when she's all wrapped up with lots of emotions. That's- that's funny. So it's Magenta. Okay. All right. So check that out. Join us in a couple of weeks. We're so glad that you joined us today. We know that you have a choice when you listen to us that we don't just come on the radio. You make a decision to listen to us, and we so appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, which we hope that you did, tell a friend. Yes, Send sure. them our way. You don't have to keep all this good knowledge to yourself and sound all smart to your friends. It's way more fun to talk to your friend about the show. That's right. So. That's right. So share, maybe go on, leave us a review and rate yeah. us. Always good. And subscribe. Yeah. Thanks so much. See you next time. Cryptidocast has been trapped inside a spooky, potentially haunted movie theater by a madman who is forcing them to record episodes on scary movies they know nothing about. They've been promised a grand reward if they survive the month. Will they? Tune in to find out. PredictoCast is available wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> Forge Audio. Dream it. Build it. Share it.